Hello, and welcome to Square in a Circle. On this episode, we are discussing the 1973 Yom Kippur War, and I'm joined by Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Jennings. Lieutenant Colonel Jennings is an Army strategist and associate professor at the U.S. Army Commanding General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth. He has served multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, graduated from the School of Advanced Military Studies, and holds a Ph.D. in History from the University of Kent. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program are of my own and of my guests. They do not reflect the position of the U.S. government, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Army, and any other organization. This content is for education and information purposes only. All right, sir. Well, hey, thanks for being on the podcast and, and taking some taking some time, you know, on this this weekend, uh, you know, talk about a, a historical event that I, I think is very fascinating. I think it's important to understand, um, and you've published quite a bit of, you know, really great work on this historical event, which is the, you know, the Yom Kippur War of, of 73. Um, and, I, and I think it's important to understand this, this war because, you know, this, th- this event sparked a lot of lessons learned, a lot of uh, lessons identified, you know, and to help the U.S. military, um, you know, especially the Army and the Air Force, right, to transform, you know, shift from a focus uh, on Vietnam, coin, to you know, Central Europe to fill the gap, refocus on the on conventional fight, the, the Soviet Union. Um, you also had the you know the big five capabilities that that came out. Um, you know, changes in PME, uh, gunnery, and uh, NTC was was established. Uh, also, the the debate of uh, the tank is dead. You know, uh, was was sparked uh, out of out of this war as well. Um, and we see some similarities today you know i don't think like history um, repeats itself necessarily but i think it think it rhymes and there was a transformation back then after the yom kippur war with the u.s military from the 70s and 80s and here now we're going through a whole nother transformation and, and modernization trying to make changes after um identifying uh you know s- changes in the in the character of war you know stemming back from mcmaster's uh you know new gen warfare study um and the, and the lisco gap study and building up the mdo concept and codifying that and making that into into doctrine and there's changes in the in the character of war and they happen every so often and i think right now we're in that every so often right now um that being said i uh, i filibustered a little bit too much on that one sir but uh I will I'll transition to you, sir, for any uh, opening comments. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I really appreciate you having me on. I think uh, you're right, the Yom Kippur War, or as it's also called, the 1973 Arab-Israeli War. Really fascinating case study, a pivot point where we see uh, kind of a, a modernization of warfare. It's a proving ground for all the great powers looking at how combined arms warfare, joint warfare, will occur in the age of the uh, the missile battlefield. Okay, so before we actually get into the, the conflict itself, I was wondering if you can kind of give us a quick overview of, of how the war started between you know Egypt, uh, Syria, and Israel. Yeah, sure. Uh, so this war, sometimes it's called the fourth uh, Arab-Israeli war, also the fifth, depending on if you count uh, the war of attrition that occurred prior. But really, it explodes on October 6th, 1973, and against the backdrop of uh, Israeli defense force that had been just dominant, it had become a mini superpower in the Middle East over its proximate Arab ad- adversaries. So, 1948, War of Independence, you have the Suez Crisis in 56. They sweep into the Sinai and defeat uh, Egypt. 
And then you have 1973, where they really demonstrate overmatch against the Egyptians, the Syrians, the Jordanians, and it's the scope and intensity of their overmatch that just catches everybody. It's it really is uh, blitzkrieg in the desert. Um, and so that uh, with that dominant position, uh, they basically quadruple their controlled territory by adding the Sinai, Gaza Strip, West Bank, Golan Heights, uh, and it gives them some depth, uh, strategic depth with which to uh, prepare for the next uh, round of hostilities. Uh, so this war uh, is also uh, a pivot point for, in particular, the Egyptians and the Israelis as they're both taking lessons. And so they're both going to look at what worked, what didn't, and decide uh, how they want to modernize, transform their armies over the next what will be six years until the outbreak of war in 1973. And out of that, uh, you'll have kind of the Egyptians have some immediate success and the Israelis will have setbacks. And then they'll enter in kind of a challenge and response dynamic where the Israelis will, after about three weeks of fighting in 1973, prove uh, victorious once again, at least tactically. Okay, so Israel eventually succeeded. What are like some of the key, um, you know, what, what did you identify that, you know, you know why did Israel succeed and, and, you know, why did Egypt and Syria fail? What are some okay, of the key, so key points out of that? From the Israelis' per- perspective, it was the ability to bounce back. Um, they had to recover from some uh, kind of poor decision-making in the six years between 1967 and 1973, where they doubled down on what was successful in the Six-Day War and at the expense of really kind of traditional combined arms warfare and joint warfare. Um, and what I mean is they, they go all in on fast-moving heavy tanks and fast-moving aircraft working together to do this kind of blitzkrieg warfare, lightning war, uh, penetrating enemy lines and attacking deep and collapsing the entire front. And their whole doctrine, their battle culture, uh, their investments in material, again, go really uh, really investing in main battle tanks and attack aircraft, uh, that they're, they're setting themselves up to do that again. And they'll have a very rude awakening when the Egyptians, who also go to school in that conflict but take different lessons, figure out how to uh, negate both of those advantages. So the, uh, the IDF will find itself lacking initially the combined arms and answer, the joint answer they need to, um, uh, to, to do the maneuver warfare they want to do. However, over the first week, as they take losses, they'll begin to learn, they'll begin to adapt, and they'll begin to re-engage a, a combined arms approach on the ground. They'll bring in more infantry, more artillery, so they can do what I would call problem solving on the ground. And then also in the air, they'll, they'll restore a air ground atro- approach. And in a big way, a big part of this is gonna be uh, their armored forces are gonna be attacking uh, Egyptian surface air missile sites, ADA, and creating openings for the, uh, the, the air forces to get back in the fight. And so that's how they restore um, a maneuver approach to the battlefield. Uh, got it. And so it wasn't entirely just an air and, and land domain conflict. So th- this conflict involved uh, the maritime. I was just wondering if you could speak speak to that just a little bit between Israel and, and Egypt and Syria. 
Sure. Yeah. So it is decisively uh, an air ground fight, but there is an important maritime uh, consideration. And uh, similar to um, uh, back in 67, where Israeli armor and aircraft were very dominant, in 73, right from the start, the Israeli Navy will be dominant. It's a missile boat fleet uh, using uh, electronic warfare missiles to attack similar uh, uh, naval capabilities of the Egypt, first the Syrians, then the Egyptians. And they'll pretty much defeat both of their fleets and bottle them up. And kind of the main effect is they're going to, the Israeli Navy will prevent uh, any maritime cooperation, maritime envelopment by Egyptian ground forces kind of over the north side of the canal um, and really assist with the isolation of the second Egyptian second field army late in, uh, late in the conflict. Mm, got it. Fascinating. Yes. Uh, the one thing I think is, is, is fascinating, you know, one of the, the, the points or, you know, lessons that I, you know, identified from this conflict. Um, I, I first got exposed to the, the Yom Kippur War 73, reading uh, Dr. Sterling's uh, Other People's Wars. He, uh, he, he has a chapter devoted uh, specifically to the Yom Kippur War. I was, I was you know, had some interest in the Russo-Japanese War of, if I remember correctly, I think 1904, um, trying to understand some of the some of the changes in the character of war during that time, the use of the machine gun on, you know, at the tactical level, um, wireless uh, telegraphy um, that, that helped, um, you know, the Japanese and, and basically just decimate the, the, the Russian Navy. And, and in this chapter, uh, specifically on the Yom Kippur War, uh, he talks about the reconstitution of forces, the, the battlefield maintenance, you know, doing, doing BDAR. Um, I was just wondering if you could talk us through, you know, how did both sides build readiness? You know, what did reconstitution of forces look like? How important, you know, was battlefield maintenance, um, you know, for the, for the U.S. US military, um, identifying that through that, that conflict? Yeah, so for kind of all observers, it, the, the uh, 73 war was a reminder that attrition is an uh, integral part of most large-scale conflicts. Um, and so both the Egyptians, the Syrians, the Israelis, they all, they all suffer devastating losses immediately in time, you know, for the Israelis, 40, 40 to 45% loss of main battle tanks just in the first week, they lose 50 air attack aircraft just in the first week. Um, on October 14th, the Egyptians will launch a massive ground assault into the central Sinai. They'll lose 260 tanks in just a couple hours and be sent back into their fighting positions along the canal. So all these forces are having to deal with this, having to reconstitute on the fly. And we want to note when these divisions reconstitute, they're not allowed to pull back into some assembly area out of contact. They're in contact while they reconstitute. Uh, I can speak to, we could take, for example, um, the Israeli 162nd division in the Sinai, they lose, 83 of about almost 200 tanks on October 8th in about two days of fighting. So they're severely degraded, yet they have to stay kind of locked in combat along the canal while the IDF figures out what to do, how to, how to set conditions for a counteroffensive. And so they set up these repair sites, tank repair sites, right behind their lines. They're actually sending uh, 
kind of um, wrecker teams forward to grab broken tanks, bring them back to their repair sites. And so they do are able to return some of these tanks back to the fight. Um, at the same time, they're having to repair formations, integrate new soldiers, new units, and rebuild the division, getting ready to go back on offense. So this is a good example of kind of the, the requirements of reconstitution personnel, material, and also uh, psychologically preparing these men to attack a SAGR missile defense that had just uh, decimated their formation. So this was a reminder to both the U.S. Army and, frankly, the, the Soviet Army that this is a reality of warfare that you cannot wish away. Um, and they had have to be ready to deal with this. Yeah, with with attrition, I was wondering if you could kind of explain, you know, you know, for the audience, you know, what is, you know, attrition based, you know, warfare, you know, compared to, you know, combined arms maneuver. Um, you know, you know, how exactly did, you know, Israel employ, you know, maneuver theory in relation to, uh, you know, the other method of war, you have positional as well. Um, so if you could talk us through, you know, positional and attrition, um, and, and how did, how did Israel, you know, employ maneuver theory? Yeah. So if you start at kind of the theater strategic level, uh, attrition favors the Egyptians, favors the Syrians and, and their, uh, other Jordanian, Saudi, Iraqi, uh, Moroccan, all their all the, all the Arab allies, they so outnumber the uh, IDF that any long war that just gr keeps grinding forces down, it favors them dramatically. So the onus for Israel is to win quickly, win decisively, and end the war before uh, they can begin to suffer in a in a contest of endurance. Um, and so the, that means operationally, they have to go on offense. They have to maneuver. Uh, maneuver deep in enemy lines, behind their lines, and try to end the war on, on terms favorable to Jerusalem. Um, and so for them, there's a, a, literally an obstacle in the way. It's called the Suez Canal. And they have to figure out how to fight their way across it. And rather than doing frontal attacks against the Egyptian field forces that have crossed the canal instead of a very long linear defense, they figure a, uh, a more efficient way is to uh, pass through them, a deep and narrow penetration, and then they're going to turn north and south and cut the lines of communication of these large mechanized armies, uh, cut their supply going back to Cairo, where the kind of the national support area is. So that's a more efficient way to use maneuver warfare theory and avoid the perils of attrition and exhaustion. And, and there was a series of wet gap crossings in the, in the conflict. Am I, am I, am I correct, sir? Absolutely. So this is a great case study to look at two examples. The Egyptians right off the bat, they commenced the conflict with a five division front gap crossing over the canal, which is about 150, uh, 200 meters wide. And it is, it's a brilliant operation. Um, they overwhelm the Israeli defenders and they, in just about a day, they get all these divisions across basically about two cores. They start bringing armor over. Um, they bring up their surface to air missile shield to kind of extend the bubble over their, uh, def their defenses that are now on the far side of the canal. Uh, and then the final piece, they bring over these SAGR missile teams and who are now waiting for the Israeli armor to do their kind of doctrinal immediate counterattack. And so they just decimate the initial uh, Israeli counteroffensive. 
and end up holding that ground, which is fa- leaves them in a favorable posture to um, keep the war going uh, and, and turn it into an attritional fight. Uh, for the Israelis, as I mentioned, in order for them to bring decision to the battlefield, they have they uh, have a pre-war plan where they also have to do crossing the canal, um, get behind the enemy uh, field forces, cut their lines of communication with some kind of kind of similar to the Germans in 1940, a sickle stroke to the north to the south, and that's exactly what they'll do. The problem is the pre-war plan had the Israelis starting at the water's edge. Now, because the uh, Egyptians have taken that ground, they have to fight their way to the water and execute a contested gap crossing. So a really tough task. And for the Israelis, unlike, excuse me, unlike the Egyptians, which will be, again, they execute a five division front crossing. The Israelis will sequence three divisions in a row at one point of crossing. And now in terms of personnel manning the, the size of these divisions are are we talking like the same size as is you know a, a US army division of you know like 10k or is it you know uh, bigger yeah, or, or a little smaller? bit more than that but yeah you're looking at three roughly 3 to 5 brigades per division and, and and reading one of your articles there was a, there was a quote um and I I definitely wanted to hit up on this uh, with you on, on this one. Uh, the quote is from an Israeli commander. He was saying, you know, you know, we are prisoners of our, of our own doctrine. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's a lot more, a lot more to it than, you know, the context behind, behind that. But, uh, you know, it, it really caught my attention because I, and when I was an instructor, I used to um, always at least grind my teeth when I would hear, you know, from, fellow peers about, you know, that's not doctrinally correct, or, you know, it's, it has to be doctrinally, it has to be in doctrine, right? You know, in my thought process, my, my philosophy was, yes, you know, you have to understand, you have to understand doctrine, right? You have to understand the, the playbook, but I think it's, you know, just as important, right, to be able to audible at the line of scrimmage, you know, I need you to be Peyton Manning, or, you know, Patrick Mahomes, right? Understand, master the playbook, but you may have to change the the play before you even get up to the line of scrimmage. And so, you know, you know, my question is, is, you know, is doctrine, you know, the playbook and we should stick to it, you know, that play, or, you know, is it a, is it a guide and, you know, we should audible, you know, right. Like how important is, is adapting is what I'm getting at. Yeah. It's, it's, it's of course just a start point. It's a common uh, guide, common understanding for everyone to fight off of, but it's, but it's there to be changed. It's there to be departed from, and that's, uh, but to do so in a way that is informed uh, uh, both by experience and intuition. Um, and this is kind of the difference between just uh, knowing nothing, but or uh, even better, knowing the doctrine and departing from it uh, in the most advantageous way. Uh, I would say uh, if we look at both the Israelis, both the, as well as the Egyptians, the Syrians, part of the problem is that they have their doctrine but they've optimized their force design for that doctrine. So in the first three days when the Israeli divisions are attacking, even if they want to change up their doctrine, they don't have the assets, the combined arms uh, architecture to be able to really uh, change their operational approach in a dramatic way, meaning they don't have enough artillery and infantry and armored infantry with them to start doing different kinds of combined arms tactics. That will change in the next week by October kind of 
15th, 16th, 17th, the Israeli divisions look very different. All kinds of infantry, mounted infantry. They brought up artillery. Um, they have more scouts. Uh, they have more air defense. And so these divisions are much more um, capable of dealing with different problem sets. Um, and so that's that's what I would offer. Even, uh, you know, even if you have some inspiration to depart from doc doctrine or to reinvent it, uh, sometimes, you know, you, you have to pay attention to the force design, to the battle culture of your formation, um, to the training program in order to be able to do the reinvention of the doctrine. And so to kind of take this a little bit further on, on, on doctrine, you know, the, the Yom Kippur War 73, you know, what we identify, we as in, you know, the United States military, it it changed our doctrine, you know, it led into active defense and then ultimately into air land battle. I was wondering if you could like speak to that, you know, and, and kind of talk us through, you know, what was active defense and what is, you know, air land battle, um, you know, are they similar or are they different, you know? Yeah, sure. So after, uh, after the war, we have senior U.S. Army generals, of course, are very interested because that war is a playground. It's a proving ground for, American and Russian technology, uh, the, you know, American uh, tanks, tow missiles, aircraft, air defense, artillery, it's all there being used on the battlefield. Likewise, Soviet grade equipment is in the hands of the Egyptians uh, and the Syrians, including kind of what is then cutting edge T-62 tanks. So they're very curious how this is all, number one, how the technology is working and they're surprised at things like uh, the consumption rates of class five, class three, uh, indicating that they don't they don't really have enough uh, to do the fight in Europe the, uh, the way that it would actually happen if uh, if the attrition rates, if the consumption rates are the same, uh, say, on the plains of Europe as they were in the Sinai, for example. And then in addition to consumption uh, of those key supply rates. Uh, also just raw attrition. Uh, they realize they don't have enough forces, enough tanks, uh, enough uh, APCs, artillery. They don't have enough of anything to do a war like that against a much larger uh, Soviet adversary that will attack in echelon. And so that's going to lead uh, to the creation of active defense, which is a very scientific defensive uh, battle concept uh, that's going to really focus on kind of the um, uh, maximizing kill ratios to offset Soviet uh, uh, numerical superiority, similar to how the, the Israelis had to do. And, and so, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, like active defense, you know, reason, you know, one of the reasons why we changed to air land battle was because, you know, in the name, right, it was, it was defensive and wanted to uh, change our doctrine to be able to do deep battle, deep strike, go on the offensive. Yeah. So part of it was an appreciation that the active defense uh, could be successful against the first, maybe second Soviet echelons, but uh, the, the third, the fourth would crash over the American defenders in East or excuse me, in West Germany. Uh, and, and they would be unsuccessful before uh, forces from CONUS could apply to reinforce and full allied mobilization could kick in. Uh, so that in every war game, active defense basically told them they didn't have enough. They, the, the Soviet um, 
kind of echelon that was too great. And so Airland Battle was an acknowledgement of that. Also an acknowledgement that the, the U.S. Army uh, Officer Corps was dissatisfied with the defensive concept, wanted to go on offense. And then finally, uh, better, good, uh, the, some dissatisfaction with NATO allies that the war would take place you know, in West Germany. Um, and and uh, much better idea, take the war into East Germany, to Poland, uh, with a more offensive concept. So you end up with Airland Battle, which seeks to use combination of uh, kind of deep ground attacks as well as deeper airstrikes to uh, crash through those first Soviet echelons, but more importantly, strike the other the the rear echelons, attack them in depth with some greater simultaneity, greater uh, greater depth, and and avoid the the problems that active defense had encountered. And so do you, do you see any like similarities, like parallels between, you know, the 73 Yom Kippur war and, and current what you're seeing in, in the Ukraine or maybe even like 2020 with the Nagorno-Karabakh war? Um, is, there, is there anything that you kind of see that's, you know, similar between, you know, history and, and contemporary? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I see, I mean, there's so many parallels. One is, as we've said, <clears throat> attrition, both uh, uh, dramatically in Russia's case, to some extent with Ukraine, that both sides have experienced uh, severe attrition of forces during this conflict. Uh, neither side has been able to really use uh, <clears throat> any kind of large-scale penetration and breakout to create a mobile uh, a war of movement, a, mo- a mobile battlefield to, to bring decision to the fight. And instead, you have this long attritional struggle, um, which is very expensive. Uh, and Part of the cause of this is neither side has been able to gain air superiority, similar to the challenges the Israelis ran into uh, in the first three days of the October war. Uh, We saw that at the onset of the Russo-Ukraine war, where the Russian Air Force, Russian ground forces attempt to do some kind of blitzkrieg, and they have their joint approach basically disaggregated and repelled in detail. And since then, the Russians have been unable to create a successful air ground approach uh, that would allow them to really do large scale maneuver. Um, and so the, um, and then the Ukrainians without uh, the ability to uh, basically launch a sizable air force also has been constrained in their maneuver capability. Um, so while I would offer a contrast, while the Russians have acknowledged that and embraced just more of a World War I attritional style front, the Israelis uh, refused to accept that because they couldn't, because of the, the disadvantages they had against the other Arab states. And they actually uh, find a way to reconverge, reintegrate their ground and air forces to bring a maneuver solution to the fight. Yeah, in the, in, in the Yom Kippur War, you know, air dominance, you know, pretty much non-existent, right? And then the, you know, the Russo-Ukrainian war, air dominance, you know, non-existent. It's, it's difficult to do combined arms maneuver. Um, do you think? Well, I, I would, uh, I would offer by the end of the war, the, the IDF or the IAF does have air dominance. Um, it just takes them a very costly and difficult road to get there. And they have to apply some novel ways to do kind of what, multi-domain operations, the new battle concept for the U.S. Army is asking for, and that's 
the ground forces end up opening up windows of opportunities uh, for the Israeli Air Force to get in the fight. And once they start that, they're able to iteratively support each other and kind of roll back the surface to air missile shield that had caused them so many problems. Once the SAMs are pushed back and out of the fight, then the Israeli Air Force is able to apply uh, kind of air interdiction, close air support to allow the maneuver breakout. So, um, yeah, at the start of the war, it definitely that that joint approach is is pushed back. It's uh, uh, it's ineffective, but gradually coinciding with the crossing of the canal by the IDF, they they managed to reinvent it. And that's what allows them to do a, a, a maneuver and exploitation phase of the campaign. Interesting. So, so you know, in this conversation, sir, you know, you mentioned a lot about attrition. Um, combined arms maneuver. Do you think, you know, for the for the USI military, do you think we're too uh, too stuck on on combined arms maneuver and 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 not enough focus on the other methods of war? Because you know the the battlefield gets a vote, right? It's not necessarily in you know a train, um, you know the, the systems, you know all have a vote, and you not necessarily can do combined arms maneuver. You may have to go towards a different method of war. I was just wondering, you know, are we too stuck on 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 combined arms maneuver? Like speaking about attrition is kind of you know, my thoughts are it kind of feels like taboo. Yeah, I mean, definitely we have a maneuver culture. Um... And there's a reason for that. Expeditionary forces need usually need to win quickly, decisively, because of you know it's expensive to move a field army to the other side of the world and maintain it there. Our political political culture back home usually is asking for a more uh, rapid end to the fight. Um, so definitely, we we embrace a maneuver culture. That's that's clear. I mean, just the shorthand of calling armor and infantry battalions maneuver battalions when they're actually a maneuver is just a thing that they can do. That's not what they actually are, but that just kind of shows how our um, our organization uh, views and embraces maneuver. Um, and so there there is uh, definitely a pitfall there. Not all not all terrain is suitable for maneuver. Not all wars are going to be um, is maneuver going to be conducive to. There could be some other kind of defensive technological um, problem that we run into. Uh, and so having uh, the both the the mental flexibility, the doctrinal flexibility to um, to to apply other other operational approaches is is definitely very important, um, and also acknowledging uh, probably I think uh, I think the word is out that attrition is the U.S. military's Achilles heel, whether it be um, the in a large scale combat operation where it's intense short and you have entire divisions uh, being obliterated, which has happened in the U.S. Army's history. You know, I'm thinking of the Battle of the Bulge. Uh, you can go back to Antietam, where entire divisions are annihilated in hours. Um, so that can happen, and we need to have an acknowledgement of that and have solutions for it. Yeah, sir. Um in it, you know, after the the Yom Kippur War, well, actually, even even during, like, there was a discussion of the uh, the tank is dead. You know, there's no utility for for armor forces on the on the battlefield. Um, you know, fast forward in time, you start you know seeing that debate you know come back around. You know, with in 2020 in Nagorno Karabakh, um, and even now in, in Ukraine. Um, so I was just wondering, 
if you think, you know, is, is the tank dead or is it just, you know, poor tactical execution or, you know, operational planning on, on the sides that lost the, you know, that amount of material or, you know, armor formations. Yeah. I'll, I'll steal a quote from, uh, from my colleague, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Fox, you know, the tank isn't dead, bad tactics are dead. There's always going to be a role for, uh, uh, mobile protected firepower. The tank could get a little smaller. It could get lighter potentially for future, uh, maneuver considerations, but it's definitely not dead. Uh, what we see in Ukraine where it's being used um, by and large and sometimes as almost artillery role, uh, as small, very small kind of almost pairs or triads of tanks going forward and, and small scale attacks. Um, that's what has to happen in that war. That doesn't mean it's going to be in every war, uh, especially as as the armies of the world are studying what's happening there. They're going to find new ways to do combined arms approaches that enable uh, tanks to do what they do best, which is which is to maneuver. Um, as and uh, one thing we should keep in mind: the in 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 some some campaigns, the ultimate role of the tank is not to kill other tanks. You want to use anti-tank weaponry, air weaponry to do that. What you want is your tank to get out and move and cut through the enemy's soft underbelly and cut lines of communication, destroy. Uh, supporting assets like artillery, logistical nodes, C2 nodes, things like that is uh, kind of the ultimate aspiration in my mind of tank warfare. Oh, that's great. That's great, sir. Um, and this is, this, this may be a difficult one, but you know, you've, you spent a lot of time and in, in, in studying this conflict, you've published a lot on it. What is, you know, the, the number one, like big takeaway from the Yom Kippur war that you could, you, that you would disclose? One of the things I, I think about, I talk about this in the classroom, really it's two. So one is that um, we often plan for using the full capability of our militaries, the full suite of our tactical and technological um, assets, but sometimes politics will get in the way. And so we've seen this at times where uh, both domestic and international politics will deprive the military of applying its full capability. And so here, the example of 73 is uh, <clears throat> on October 6th, well, uh, you know, hours before the Arabs are about to attack, the Israelis know it's coming. And in 67, they had conducted preemptive decapitation strikes with their air force, really adopting kind of Duhay theory of destroying the enemy air fleet on the ground. That's the best case scenario. And that works for them. And once they do that, it allows their ground forces really to get up and go without worrying about interference from an enemy air force. Um, so that's a lesson that sometimes politics uh, will deprive you because in 73, uh, the uh, Israeli prime minister doesn't want to have that, that look again that they started the war. So they have to take the bloody nose first. And, and they, they do not allow their air force to do those uh, preemptive decapitation strikes, and it changes the entire complexion of the war. So again, just the lesson that we need to be able to uh, uh, learn to fight under adverse, adverse circumstances, sometimes not with our full toolkit. I'm thinking of the Battle of Way, where the Marines go in and they're not allowed to use heavy artillery and heavy airstrikes because it's a the city is a cultural icon um, and, it, they, and they bleed for it. So that's happened time and time again where political considerations um, will, uh, I don't want to use the word constrain, 
but direct the operational approach. By the way, that's not a critique. As we all know, the military executes policy. And so that's just that's just the job description. So that's one. The second one is definitely attrition. Um, if you have uh, uh, an army that is designed to be just enough uh, to use maneuver uh, with the forces you send forward and th- you expect those forces to, to win quickly without reconstitution, uh, you need to put a lot of thought into that because you're opening up um, some potential setbacks if you suffer uh, more losses, uh, more casualties, uh, loss of equipment to greater degrees than you're expecting. Um, that's what happens to the Israelis and they're put back on their back heels. Um, so I think uh, that's something I would want to worry about as well, especially considering contested sea locks where you could see interruptions in um, you know supply for maybe a mechanized core that's forward. Yeah, yes, sir. I I think you know one of the one of the big things that you know I, I took away from you know just my my minor um, you know studies in, into this conflict was you know just the the mobile the Israeli mobile repair teams you know the you know doing BDAR doing maintenance you know out there in in the combat zone and it was something you know putting my company commander you know hat back on you know a few years ago. Um, not in conflict, but, you know, preparing for CTC rotations and, and doing training, you know, harping on, um, you know, my, my soldiers, my maintainers, you know, to, to get used to doing maintenance, you know, out in the field and not using, you know, not, you know, retrograding equipment back, you know, an ASV, you know, the, the engines, um, you know, w- you know, shot up, right. Um, doing, doing that maintenance, doing that 10, 20 level maintenance here out in the field and not, you know, being comfortable doing it under a, under a 10 or, you know, retrograding it back to a, to a hard site, to a, to a fixed site. Um, so, okay, sir. Um, yeah, we, we covered a lot in here and this is, this is great. Um, well, I think we'll start wrapping, wrapping things up. Um, you know, one of the, one of the big things about the, the discussion was to get a little bit deeper into understanding war and, and war fighting, you know, for force managers, um, you know, instead of just being fixated on, you know, just talking Pentagonese and, and the requirements, but understanding how, you know, about maneuver, understanding about attrition, understanding about, you know, war and, and war fighting, because that's, you know, how our, how, you know, our, our senior leaders, you know, they, they talk, right? Um, so I'll transition to uh, the fun questions. And, you know, this is what I ask all of my guests that are, that are on the, on the podcast. So the first one I'll, I'll hit up with is, you know, what is your, your all-time favorite book? Oh, definitely Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn. It's about uh, kind of a story of the Texas frontier and the really the early to mid-1800s. Uh, I think it's beautifully written. It just happens to cover my own um, doctoral research area. So I love it because I'm just, I'm frankly jealous that he can write so well and tell the story uh, in such a fascinating way. What emerging or future capability technology worries you the most? Worries me the most right now, underwater drones. I'm watching what's happening in the Black Sea. The One of the most impressive things that the Ukrainian kind of military has done is to push the Russian Black Sea fleet basically out of the combat zone, made it uh, a non-factor uh, to some degree. Um, and so... That's that's a brilliant achievement, and a big part of this is these underwater drones. And so I have some worries about what that means for U.S. military force projection, sea lift, 
the things that we've come uh, accustomed to with assured logistics, you know, if I have an entire armored core forward and it gets cut off for any reason, that's a real problem. And so uh, that's that's something I'm concerned about because uh, the whole world's watching and they're going to be looking to apply these asymmetric advantage opportunities uh, to uh, to avoid American strengths. Wow, that's awesome. That's a that's a first on on this one, sir. Usually it's uh, about artificial intelligence or, or like information ops. Um, okay, so the, the the final one is any any advice, you know, words of wisdom for you know our, our force managers out in the field, or or just even you know just just being a staff officer. Yeah, so I would say force managers just be involved in the entire uh, dare I say dot mil pf discussion. I know that's a dreaded uh, acronym. You know, at the at the Army Staff College, the the officers have to to grapple with that. But I think it's very applicable that you need all all the interest interested parties at the table to design an army that is optimized of uh, to do uh, the operational concept well. So in this case, MDO, but also versatile enough uh, to do a variety of other missions. So in two thousand two, we have an army in Germany that's really designed to do conventional warfare, large scale fire maneuver against the Russians. We then have to take that, spread it out over Iraq into hundreds of fobs and company and platoon level actions. And it's a whole different problem. And so that's, this isn't the first, that won't be the last time the US Army has to vacillate between very different kinds of warfare. And so I would say force designers, you have a hand in that in, both helping the helping the 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 force optimize its kit right for the the MDO that it wants to do, but also having those discussions of how what other what other uh, what what limitations are we incurring and how could this force be um, applied differently. All right, awesome, awesome. Um, I'll, I'll defer to you, sir. You know, if there's any you know last word, any final comments before we sign off. Hey, uh, Matt, I really appreciate you having me on. I enjoy talking about this. Um, I'll just say I, this is a fantastic podcast you're doing. I've looked over some of your episodes uh, and it's probably I, I can see the obvious value for the FA50 community. This is just uh, a, a great focal point to, to get shared understanding. But I'll just say also educational for the rest of the Army to tap in here, listen to your discussions and kind of understand where your community is coming from. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, sir. You know, I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate having me on. All right. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes of Force Management. Senior leader discussions, another dive into PBBE, the budget, a discussion on strategic readiness, and a look at our competitors as outlined in our strategic documents.